Hello and welcome to Digital Surfing with Darren Smith, the podcast that dives into digital leaders' success and failures as they ride the wave of a career in digital business. Introducing our host, Darren Smith. Hi, I'm your host, Darren Smith, and every episode I'll be chatting to a special interviewee on what they've learned on their digital journey. Digital transformation and maturity is key to surviving in business today, and many people have a host of stories to tell about the successes and failures of digital projects they've been involved with. Let's go digital surfing. Welcome to Digital Surfing, the podcast that features digital leaders, highs and lows as they ride the wave of their digital career. I'm your host, Darren Smith, and today we have Wendy McEwen. She has a career in digital, starting in media, then moving into mark tech and custom experience tech, and then moving into client side. A few of my favorites from today's episode is where she speaks about using custom experience to build a brand, the propaganda-based education that Google and Facebook are giving marketers, and how the death of the cookie needs to be considered in your future strategies. Let's go digital surfing. Welcome, Wendy. So great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Darren. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Cool. Well, let's get started with a bit of a background, your background, your career history. Talk me through that. Sure. So I joined the digital media industry in 1999 in Sydney, Australia, onboarded as an ad traffic manager to what was then known as ZD Internet uh, and became ZDNet.com and then CNET, CNET Network, CBS CBS Interactive. 14 years in that digital media industry. So really building uh, native native businesses, disrupting, and then I guess becoming the disrupted. Moved to Singapore in 2010 to become the VP of APAC. Um, That gave me a really good foundation in kind of managing and building that digital media business and scaling and growing and adapting to change. Then I became a consultant and an advisor and kind of dipped my toe in the water around different things like ad tech, social networks, influencer marketing, et cetera. And then recognizing the customer experience as a growth engine for modern business, I joined Oracle to deepen my knowledge of the software tools available to business to enable smarter customer and employee experiences. From there, I then decided that I wanted to walk in the shoes of the customer. So after 20 years of selling to marketers, I became a marketer. So for the past two and two and a bit years, I've been working in one of the world's most traditional and yet to be disrupted industries in real estate as the head of marketing and digital for Asia Pacific in real estate brokerage. And very soon, I'm going to be going back to technology and to a chief of staff role. So really been a diverse kind of range of roles, seniority, functions, and uh, industries, which has been great experience. Now, my favorite uh, people to work with, uh, because owning a consultancy myself, are people that have worked in kind of selling to marketers and then becoming a marketer because they understand those type of those type of pressures those like pressures of like being briefed on a friday afternoon for something that needs to be delivered by monday morning so absolutely i kind of appreciate kind of that background and where you moved to um in terms of like you you mentioned customer experience there and oracle and you know i find that really interesting you know so oracle's got that kind of a CRM suite, marketing, automation, service, and that type of thing. But they've kind of bundled that all under CX, under customer experience, which I don't see many of the other competitors doing the same thing. I mean, like, 
what is the do you have any background to that why is it that they've kind of grouped that all under cx which is very unique is it something they're trying to own that 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 kind of terminology well, I, I don't know that it is unique to Oracle. I always thought Salesforce used very similar terminology, for example, and they've done a similar thing, right, where they have um, the marketing stack that is mostly acquisitions and then the sales stack with Salesforce CRM and then the customer service suite that they've added. And I think CX actually was a term that came out of customer service, right? So customer service reinvented themselves as customer experience. But then it became end-to-end -end about all touch points with the customer and that front office kind of touch points end to end with the customer and commerce is actually in there as well, depending in the B2C environment, at least commerce and content and digital asset management, CMS, et cetera, which is more the Adobe suite, right? So, you know, that kind of end to end acquisition, um, you know, connecting of tool sets in that through acquisition, as well as natively building tools and, and wrapping all that up into this front office tool set for the enterprise is, is where I think that customer experience label comes from. I think Accenture is now calling it uh, BX, right? So you have CX as customer experience and the kind of front office. Uh, EX is employee experience and that kind of HR stack. And then Accenture are now talking about BX, which is business transformation. So you have that smarter business transformation where you connect. ERP, HR, CX together and have that end-to-end -end technology enabled business transformation, which is really where my passion lies these days. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I want to ask you a branding question, right? So I, I get how like kind of, you know, it's quite smart how it's all being grouped around CX or BX, uh, EX, and there's like kind of, the, the, I like the term, the front office that you, that you use. But if we take Oracle in particular, right? So they've got Eloqua, uh, Blue Kai, Responsus. When I read those product names, even somebody that's been in the industry like myself for a long time, I don't know exactly what they do. Um, and so there's always the branding debates. Do you call it Oracle CX ads, Oracle CX social, Oracle CX analytics, or do you go with kind of unique brands in like Responsus and Eloqua and, and, and so on? What's your opinion on that kind of branding conundrum? Well, you know, I think everyone's been through that evolution, right? Because um, there, is, there was a lot of M&A that went on to build these stacks, right? You had the same thing with Salesforce and Exact Target and Pardo and the same thing with Marketo and Adobe, for example, right? And, and you know, now they're called Adobe Target or whatever the case may be. And there was a lot of other Adobe products in there that have also been rebranded. For someone who has been an Eloqua specialist and a marketing automation specialist, um, or, you know, between Eloqua and Marketo, they'll probably always bleed red or bleed purple, right? Regardless of who owns those products. At the end of, I think Eloqua was actually, I can't remember now, blue or um, another color before it became an Oracle product. Um, Blue Kai, you know, what is a DMP these days, right? Like it's all about CDPs now. It's not really about a DMP anymore. So as you evolve the stack to be more end-to-end, -end, then you do want to involve it more to be that end-to-end. -end. And obviously when you have a product like HubSpot that's built natively on one platform and isn't built around acquisitions but actually is one platform end-to-end -end underneath, they sell against that, uh, you know, combination of kind of acquired stacks with different names that nobody 
he necessarily understands. But nobody knows really what HubSpot is any more than what Salesforce is, any more than what Eloqua is, unless they've used those products or that they come from a tech kind of MarTech CX background, right? So until you start playing with these tools, do you really, you know, the difference between marketing automation and cross-channel orchestration, you know, I don't know how long I spent trying to explain the difference between responses and Eloqua and the use cases for each of the above, and then why they're both different to email marketing, right? And just your plain old kind of email marketing tools in the in Marcy's of the world, right? And MailChimp, like, why are they all different? They do email, right? But they're wildly different in their actual application. So, how can a marketer make these decisions, right? Like it's so complex and it's getting more and more so. I'm so glad when I got into the space and I, I, I read a note about yourself as well, like that MarTech infographic that Scott Brinker comes up with every year. You know, I think when I started, there were 200 or 300 applications on there. It's now like mm, 8,000. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you see last year he built an event one? And at the beginning of last year, there was 200. And by the end of the year, there was 1,000 just for events, right? Wow. For digital like webinar events and stuff, right? Like in one year. So the complexity is overwhelming, which is why it's really important to have uh, good partners to help you wade through it. Yeah, absolutely. So also what came to mind now, and, and it's kind of slightly off topic, but the... Um, was Oracle the, the 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 guys behind the Infinity Loop, the Custom Experience Infinity Loop? They um, were, yeah. So Darren Mason, I think, was one of the kind of lead thought leaders around that, and I think it still exists. Yeah, but mm. yeah, that that end to end kind of cycle between uh, acquisition through to retention and upsell in that Infinity Loop was the basis of the CX story, I guess. Yeah, I really love that. I mean, like HubSpot's got their flywheel, which is kind of. Uh, I love I love the flywheel. I actually <laughs> use the flywheel more, more in my current job than I use the infinity loop these days. Oh, that's crazy. I was about to say the opposite thing. I, I prefer the <laughs> infinity loop to the, to the flywheel, but wow, okay. Yeah, it's really interesting models. I love them. I, I think the flywheel is a really good, in B2B, I think the flywheel works really well because you're bringing, you're really trying to blend sales and marketing, right? And you're trying to coach marketers to think like sellers and sellers to think like marketers. So the flywheel works really well because it takes away the funnel conversation and the kind of MQL to SQL handover. Whereas I think the infinity loop works really well in a B2C environment. So, you know, they both have their places for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so the one part of your overview that you that you left out, and, I, and probably because it's insignificant, really, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna check its significance with you. So you told me that that you were concierge for a while, um, and uh, you know what I have picked up is people with that kind of background in service and kind of customer delight and creating memorable experiences absolutely excel in marketing and branding because that's the same thing creating emotive experiences do you feel that that kind of grounding uh, uh, as short as it may have been as a concierge has, has has helped with your foundation in marketing well you know i had two or three jobs actually and i skipped that part of my career because i didn't want to reveal how old i am so i just start from 1999 when i was in digital but yeah there were a few years before that so I moved to Japan um, after university and did a working holiday for 18 months and that's when I was a concierge working in a hotel so 
firstly, I was a concierge. Secondly, I was in Japan, which is, you know, a very service-driven society. When I returned from Japan, I worked at the Ritz-Carlton, which was a pioneer in knowledge management and really recognising the customer, right, and, and recognising repeat customers and having a global database of who their customers were. So any Ritz-Carlton you went to in the world there would be a recognition that you were a Ritz-Carlton customer and how you would be treated and the whole kind of ethos and credo that you got taught as a Ritz-Carlton employee. So that foundation in customer service and understanding the customer it's not just for marketing, it's for business in general, right? Like really understanding what who is the customer and why they matter to your business is foundational transformation for any business that you work in and has been fantastic for me for every job I've had ever since. It's, it's so true. I mean, like, if you delight a customer, I mean, like, I, I suppose, let, let, let me take a step back. I believe the, the most powerful type of marketing that will never die or the tactic that will never die is word of mouth marketing. So maybe there's the latest cool TikTok thing or whatever that everybody jumps onto and it's cool for a while. But the thing that will last the test of time is word of mouth marketing. And if you can delight your customers, they're going to tell their colleagues, their friends and so on. It, it is so powerful. That's why you love the infinity loop, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a huge believer in building your brand through your people you know like we mm. our, our people are our brand and building mm. our brand through our people and if your people understand the customer and can deliver that kind of delight then that will be how you continue to retain those customers win more business from those customers and then have them tell other customers about you so i totally agree with you it's fantastic but you can only delight if you can be useful you know, and, yes. and to be useful, you need to understand your customer and you need to be more focused on the problem you're solving as opposed to what you're trying to sell. Mm, mm, yes, I agree. So talking about useful, right? So, and jump in a few decades then. Um, so for me, one of the most useful pieces of technology is calendaring, scheduling type tools. I currently, um, you mentioned exactly the same for yourself. Um, you mentioned kind of one of the cool companies out there at the moment, UiPath, which is also all about kind of automation and, and, and so on. Like, like, you know, I can't imagine a world without having a calendar meeting link that somebody can just book. I mean, like it took so much effort to find a time before that. And it's so simple, such a simple mundane task that has now been automated. Now, if you look at like companies like UiPath, companies like Calendly, like, is this the future of work? Well, you know, that's a big topic and we could do a podcast just on that topic. <laughs> I think the future of work has so many layers to it. When you, you know, where I work right now, we think about the future of work through the context of space and the role that the office plays and how, how your physical space manifests to impact your work environment and, and your ability to do work and collaborate and innovate. Obviously, when you work in technology, you talk about the same thing, how AI uh, and robotic process automation, for example, enable you, free you from the mundane to do to collaborate and innovate and be effective. And, and things like Calendly are obviously a very AI driven and they help free you from those kind of that back and forth and they give you time back to focus on other things. So this kind of 
conversation has so many layers to it and the blend, that hybrid blend between the physical and the digital, um, coaching people to remember what was good about physically being together and working together versus what's good about remotely working together, what's good about what technologies you can adopt to help your business operate more effectively and, uh, and then what the impact of that could be on your business. And, you know, it all starts with digitalization and digitization, right? And this kind of connecting silos, connecting customer touch points, going back to that CX conversation we were having, if you don't connect information in your business, at first digitize that information and then enabling enable your business to, to see that information across those, it might just be in marketing, right? If you have above the line and below the line and you have data sets and information about interactions with the customer that you're not putting together, you're not delighting the customer because you're not using all that digital body language to anticipate and engage with the customer in using the information they've told you to be more useful or to give them the offers that matter to them, right? And there's so much opportunity to leverage technology to be more effective in how you engage with your customers or prospects. Uh, and so many companies are still at that nascent stage of being able to digitize their information, connect those touch points and engage more effectively. You know, but obviously digitally native, very advanced companies are, are forcing customer expectations that they expect every company to be able to do that. The reality is with big legacy tech stacks and legacy mindsets, many companies have yet to take those steps. You're right, they're kind of taking that tech stack and then the mindset, I think like the mindset is almost more difficult to change. Um, you know, so, uh, and I think people are, are, are worried about, about, you know, careers using that example that you used earlier about tubspot being built kind of as a single platform i so often come across it managers that resist the rollout of a platform that's already integrated because they fear that well what am i how am i going to justify what I, yeah yeah um, but this comes back to i think what i used to say often in my old job was it's not the CMO we need to educate, it's the CEO. Because if you're not setting, if you're not setting higher expectations of your team to deliver better, like you need to change the KPIs, you need to change the org structure, compensation drives behavior, you need to, to manipulate your people and your teams into opportunity and potential to and, and push them to take advantage of these things to deliver better outcomes for your business. But many CEOs don't understand that, right? So then you have that fear. Then you have that kind of reservation because they don't feel like there's a future there for them. They can't see it. Um, so there's a, yeah, there's a huge amount of levers mm. that need to work together. Yeah, I, I, I can hear from the way you're speaking. You, know, you are a disruptor at heart. Um, and uh, and trying to change, I love the term that you 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 used when we're preparing for this for this interview, corporate overlords. And you know, like like how do you like skipping forward a little bit? You you had CNET, and there were a whole bunch of kind of firsts that you launched there, and, and you spoke about kind of you know being the the person that's prepared to take to experiment and 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 push those boundaries, and then using using that data um, that you've captured to 
change the minds of those CEOs and those corporate overlords. Tell me a bit about that kind of that what what you were going through with those firsts at CNET and how you did that. Yeah, so I think it was being the poster children for experimentation. Uh, it, it's really that you know, and sometimes being at the outer layer outer layer of the onion, as we often think of ourselves out here in Asia Pacific, when you have US HQ. Uh, you can be a long way from the epicenter, right, which can be a disadvantage and also an advantage because you can test and learn in a different kind of way and, and not necessarily follow corporate kind of mandates as closely, you know, and I think where you can find a willing kind of group of people, whether it be your IT guy or whether it be your business stakeholder in a certain part of your business, you know, you work together to do something differently together. And it doesn't necessarily need to take a lot of budget or you find a client to do it with. You know, in my case, back in the CNET days, it was really our big clients. You know, IBM was always experimenting. They always, you know, our clients back then were big IT marketers and they always wanted to do something new and digital was so new, right? And back when we were the disruptor as opposed to being disrupted by, you know, later Facebook and Google, et cetera. And so building something together, if you got the money and the revenue, then, you know, they wanted to do something, you wanted to do something, you'd build it, figure it out, deliver results, and then keep trying. So it's really finding the right stakeholders, finding the right ideas, finding the money, and then executing and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. And, and, and this, I mean, I this particular kind of project you were working on was was around kind of ad units innovation in, in, in that type of space? Yeah, so back then, like we're talking a long time ago, again, you're <laughs> aging me, um, was really introducing to the market uh, a whole, a whole you know, a whole new ad unit. Like, I don't know if you remember, we used to call them medium rectangles. I think they just call them 300 by 250s. But as a publisher, introducing new ad units to the market, first you need to find people willing to spend, you know, like we're saying, like you need to find willing um, customers to buy these things. And so you need to build the value proposition, what's in it for them. And then uh, we had two sets of customers, obviously, because the readers were also our customer and, you know, they were who we were selling really well, like, as dirty as that might feel to say these days. And um, the IT professional were our readership back then and, and people interested in buying consumer electronics. And I remember that, the kind of consternation and the outrage of taking up so much real estate with advertising <laughs> and uh, like this, this rectangle on the page. And so kind of building your client comms to get one set of clients to want to be a part of it and the other set of clients to accept it. And, you know, this is what's funding their ability to get this information for free. So, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. And then, you know, getting the corporate overlords back to the topic to be okay with you trying it, trialing these different kind of added executions, different, you know, like the masthead was so sacrosanct back then and building the skins around the masthead was a very new thing. You know, eventually everybody did it, but we were one of the first to do it. So again, we got to be, and I think these days, Facebook and Twitter use Australia a lot as their test market before they launch into much bigger markets. So it's quite common now, but 20 years ago, I guess it wasn't so much. Yeah, I suppose like uh, just to frame the conversation uh, and, and and step a few a uh, few places back again. I mean, like it all comes down to as you say, clients that are prepared to do things first, 
but you need, really need to ask yourself, why is the client prepared to do things first? And that's because like things become old so quickly. You don't stand out, uh, which goes back to, you know, focus on brand, focus on customer experience, get the word of mouth. Um, obviously grab, try, try new things all the time. But I suppose the other worry that marketers have when it comes to return on investment is, you know, I've got these tried and tested tactics that will get me my KPIs and my bonus and so on. Do I invest 100% of my budget into that or do I go and try these new things? Like what, I mean, like, do you have a guide on what percentage marketers should try new things versus the tried and tested? Well, this goes back to whether or not the KPIs are the right KPIs and, and, you know, my challenge to the CEO as opposed to the marketer, because I think it's very easy to deliver the status quo. It's not easy to deliver, to think about what will your business be tomorrow versus what it was yesterday and how you optimised in, optimize into being, continuing to be relevant to the customer. I think that kind of tension between test and learn and experimentation and, and continuing to fly the plane the way you've always flown it is it, it's different in different sectors and it's it depends on the disruption around you and the competition around you right and where the competition's coming from so I think it I don't think a, there is one perfect ratio I think it depends where your market is at where your customer is at and what the evolution is that's happening in your industry and your sector but you do think that they should invest in innovation, not just tried, tried and tested. If it was you, absolutely. I think, but I think it, this comes back to understanding your customer and knowing where where are you going to get growth from, right? Mm. And where are you going to get opportunity from? And not being, you know, if your KPI is PR and running the same events you've been running forever, that that maybe you know great to get your bonus but is it really helping your business deliver growth not yeah. necessarily right and so mm -hmm. you have to be connected to the stakeholders that matter in your business and and really be that expert on your customer and figure out what's the best way to still be relevant in 12 months 24 months five years versus mm -hmm. what do i get paid to show up for so on, on relevancy the other thing that you did at cnet was kind of moving from that kind of regional focus to kind of a more global website, which in terms of relevancy, you know, brands go across, across borders. You can't compete against each other. Like what were the learnings from that? I mean, that must've been a huge project. What were the learnings you took out of, out of that? What did that project entail? Yeah, well, that was, I guess, my first big business transformation project where really going from being independent country operations and operating as silos and, and doing the same thing over and over again to replatforming to be a global business and one tech stack, one CMS, one kind of audience base and customer base, which seems pretty standard these days, but, you know, pre-2008, post-2008, how you operated a web business was very different. And, you know, the competition came in. So that kind of going from being the disruptor to being the disrupted and, you know, the competition and the way that marketers started to expect, you know, like they, they got taught to expect a whole different level of audience and reporting because of the way the Facebook, Google, kind of Apple 
delivery of advertising and delivery of audience at scale and programmatic as well, delivering audience at scale. So a traditional publishing model based around context and, um, and content just couldn't compete, right? It was very difficult to compete. And as the platforms proliferated and you had to be able to, you know, web wasn't just about uh, browsers anymore, right? It was about smart televisions. It was about mobiles. It wasn't just about one mobile. It was about Android and Apple and then the proliferation of Androids. Then it was about gaming consoles. And so where you needed to be able to be present as a brand and as a, as, as a company where people wanted to consume content, how your audience wanted to engage with you, what you needed to know about your audience, you know, that whole, which continues to be an issue today, right? Brands have so much opportunity to think like publishers in today's operating environment when you think about the death of the cookie and this kind of first party data requirement. To be relevant to your customer, you need to know who they are, to know who they are, that you need to have a value proposition where they share that information with you, which a lot of the time could be content driven or utility driven. And what do most brands have? It could be content in that, you know, in that context of providing information about the market, etc. So being able to have that heritage that I had around really shifting from a local market operating model to a global operating model to replatforming from operating everything independently to operating as part of a much bigger business. And that mindset change, the talent change to executing that, like first, you know, strategizing what needed to happen and getting everyone on the same page around what needed to happen and why, and then actually executing it, you know, it was, it was multiple years in the making to do it but the reality was the revenue we were earning and the revenue we were going to earn was going to change because our business model was changing and this you see this over and over again in industries right how you made money yesterday and how you will make money tomorrow is going to change and therefore your cost base needs to change your product and go to market needs to change and many people struggle with adjusting and COVID's been the best opportunity to be able to make that adjustment undercover do you know what I mean without having to explain it to the street uh, so it's been really interesting to watch who, who took advantage of that and who has not. Mm. So you mentioned Facebook, Google, Apple and so on there um, and, and the change now one of the things that these leaders do really well is education they almost like kind of dominate that like kind of they teach you how to do stuff but in their way it's to me it feels like propaganda right because yeah uh, great 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 description yeah google's going to teach you how to buy ads that make them the most money and they're going to teach you how to buy ads full stop marketing is about much more than ads Right. Adver mm. Marketing is not advertising. Advertising is part of an overall marketing strategy. And I think, you know, when, the reason I'm so passionate about this topic is as I traveled around emerging Asia in like 2015, 2016, 2017, and I sat in the boardroom with all of these companies thinking about how to reach their customer in a digital environment, they were all educated by Facebook and Google to buy and Apple to an extent, but mostly Facebook and Google, and then subsequently the super apps, which also are motivated by helping them build their relationship with their customer, right? And, and these walled gardens who own the customer relationship, going back to the point of first party and really 
being able to delight your customer requires you to know your customer. To know your customer, you need to have a first-party relationship with them. So buying access to your customer through Google or Facebook or Grab, for that matter, doesn't make sense, right? As a marketer, your job is to build the opportunity to have a direct relationship with your customer somewhere along the, the journey. And so I used to always be pitching in um, Oracle that we should build a MarTech Academy because it's marketing tech and customer experience technology that helps you get to know your customer and connect the touch points so that you don't, if you're just buying advertising all the time, you're paying to reach the people you already know. You know, and it's mm. like this whole thing of uh, with uh, email, right? Everyone says email is dead. If you use marketing automation and cross-channel orchestration properly, email is still your most effective, cost-effective marketing channel by far. But you have to treat it with respect so that your customer appreciates and wants to open your emails. So, are you, I mean, if I read between the lines a little bit, you need to take whatever Google and Facebook say with a pinch of salt. If you are going into a market and you've got a go-to-market strategy, I mean, like, if you can develop a, an academy that actually educates, and I'm mean, like, you could do it in, in the same way as Google and, and, and Facebook and have a bit of propaganda in there, but that's probably one of the most effective go-to-market strategies then um, for many of these companies. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, I think the freemium model of onboarding to your product and helping people use your product and coaching people how to use your product with all of that education is an amazing way to build a first-party relationship with your customer. The enterprise tech model of making you go through rounds and rounds and rounds of demos with people who don't necessarily understand your product uh, and, and your customer and what you're trying to do in order to then commit six figures to adopt technology that you don't have the talent to operate with partners who also don't necessarily understand the front office. It's just an ineffective way to onboard and retain customers, right? So I think this digitally native, you know, where we're seeing the SaaS market move to this freemium kind of onboarding, uh, but you still need that education layer. And what Google and Facebook have really been good at is educating people to use their tools. And Amazon, right? Like we all use Amazon. So you, everyone's very comfortable that they can get the outcome they need from those products. But if you are, you're just continuing to go through that cycle, you never get to what can be really effective for your business. So I know we're running out of time, but you know the one question I really want to ask here now is, you know, everybody wants to uh, kind of connect with the business decision makers, the CROs, the CSOs, the CEOs. They, you know, if you're trying to sell something like software, consulting, whatever, like you need to speak to them, and maybe there's influences along the way. So, like, do you have an opinion on? Like those type of people aren't going to go on to a site and sign up for a free trial. It's beyond them. They're not going to go and do a one hour webinar to learn a particular topic. Like how do you get to them with that same, that kind of thinking of freemium and academy? You know, that's a great question. And you're right. They're not going to go and test and learn themselves. So um making that possible for their people and their talent so you're not asking them for a big spend commitment up front. And it is overwhelming how many people would be targeting the CEO and the CHRO and the CIO and the CMO and the CSO right now. I think those 
there has been a lot of education, you know, like this year's, this past 18 months has been an amazing time to upskill, right? Like between the podcasts and the webinars and um, the free events, you know, we've all been able to, all those events in the US we could never physically travel to that all of a sudden were available to us to watch and be part of on demand. Um, I think you still go back to those environments where your customer is, how you can be there. So your target audience and having that kind of, ability to simplify the complex and build confidence, finding the influencers and the cheerleader in the business that you can help and support and guide, um, you know, from your customer, right? Like understanding the buying chain, who the technical influencers and buying influencers are and touching all of them with something useful to them. You need to understand. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the Bain kind of pyramid of B2B kind of influence you know and you have that the basic fundamentals of the price and the function and then you go back to the individual and the purpose in that pyramid and I think understanding who all the individuals are and what their purpose is and how they connect and being useful to them is how you're going to build that influence. Well, that, that is amazing. Wendy you've given us so much to to think about so to end off this yeah, so many learnings, such interesting stuff that you've shared with us today. If you had to sum it all up into kind of a single insight that you would want the listeners to take away, what would that be? I think never be afraid to experiment, right? Always always be the poster child for experimentation. Never settle for the status quo. The innovation is running at pace. There's so much opportunity to do better. Don't be afraid to get out there and give it a go. You speak in my language. I love that. Wendy, thank you so much for being with us today. I really, really appreciate it. And we'll, I think, definitely have you back sometime because I'd love to uh, kind of double click on that uh, future of work uh, topic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for the opportunity. 